Hello, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kenji Ross, a strategist at EPAM Continuum. Babies are born. They grow a bit, but don't do much, mostly observe. And then, once they have the wherewithal to move a bit, they play. And they play some more. Play becomes their primary way of learning for the next half dozen years. It's a fundamental human state, a, a flow state, the way we best learn during the part of our lives where we do the most learning. And then they go to school, have another form of learning pressed upon them, and slowly stop playing. It's unserious, it's immature, we need to get down to business. Memorize these 40 things, answer these 100 questions, play on your own time. And then they finish school and they're mature. They don't play, they are serious people who do serious things with their time. And they head off to their jobs and wonder why it's so hard to find creativity within themselves, why it's become so hard to step away from their everyday perspective and see life from someone else's shoes. But it's not that hard. A child could tell them how to do it. Today we're speaking with Ricardo Alvarez, co-author of the new book Urban Play, Make-Believe, Technology, and Space. Over the course of his interview with Ken Gordon, esteemed Resonance Test podcast producer, he grabs the thread of play and connects it to empathy, architecture, Disneyland, massively multiplayer online games, virtual reality, and Facebook, excuse me, meta. By the end of this interview, you might feel that the reality we all live in is, frankly, a bit more boring than it has to be. Ricardo, welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm so glad to have you here today. Hello, Ken. Thank you for having me. This is, fun. This is great. Cool, man. Well, we've, we've talked a bit about uh, the book you've co-authored, um, Urban Play, and I have a lot of questions I want to ask you, and I'm, I'm really uh, glad to have the chance to do so. So Bring it. Let's start in. I am a writer, and so I have a great interest in, in in sort of narration. And when you wrote in the book that spatial design is an exercise in structured storytelling, and you talked about the importance of cultural anchors and symbols as primary catalysts for place based experiences, I thought, oh my god, I want to know more about this. Can you walk me and our listeners through that sort of landscape of of geographic narrative? Can you tell me a little bit uh, what you were thinking there? Absolutely. I mean, if, 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 you go, if you go back in history, right, uh, architecture as one of the main arts has always been a manifestation of a culture. Uh, and and it, this goes beyond the aesthetics or this goes even beyond the, you know, how an architectural piece is going to be used. Uh, but it actually has to do with, you know, projecting what people are going to be doing in those spaces, designing for that if you if you want, but the the, the symbols that you inject in it and how you design accordingly, it, it also creates feedback loops in the way in which people behave in those spaces and ultimately over time they create their own stories in those spaces. So you know over time you see a process of aggregation of you know stories and stories and things to happen in all those spaces to sort of culturally anchor a building to a place and it's very important uh, so so if you know if you think about it there's there's a lot of incredibly successful spaces that what they do is they take this into account they know that they are in essence going to be part of a, a meaningful part of a conversation 
and they design accordingly, right? They, they, they push this forward. They, they allow for them to have this, this flexibility of interactions, which is sort of a dynamic storytelling, if you want. Cool. Can we talk for an example or two about that? Can you think of a, a place that sort of embodies that sort of storytelling and narrative and sort of interactivity? Uh, so, you know, Oh, well, there's there's kind of like a ton of spaces, right? Uh, so think about I'm 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 trying to steer away from the obvious religious examples over history. Mm. Okay, I'm I'm gonna put a more modern example that I write about in the book, which is uh, Disney. Yeah, right. So Disney is a great example. Disney is actually, uh, you know, it builds from the movies. That if if you go back through the original designs of, you know, Disneyland or Disney World and the skills that they developed. It, it was precisely about bringing in the stories from Disney that they had, you know, pushed through cinema, be it Snow White or Alice in Wonderland or, or you know, more, more modern stories, you know, like Toy Story and, and such. And it was about condensing, okay, uh, the narrative of the storyline in those movies, okay, kind of like these iconic moments, not just to create rights, which is which is the places where you might have it in a more intense manner, but all the place around Walt Disney, right? Uh, uh, let's say Disneyland or Disney. So wherever you're walking in Disney, what you have is all of these little pieces that make you feel like you are in place but also in story and allows you to get in character so whether you're you know in uh, in jungle cruise right it's kind of one of the iconic uh rides in disney where it was clearly um inspired by movies like you know the african queen right uh but this whole combination of you being if you walking into adventure land, you moving into an exotic land, uh, and then you know the first thing that you see is the trading post because there is an iconography of what the trading post means as your as your point of departure, right? And that is opening the door to the ride itself, which is of course the most intense spot. But now you are participating and you're sort of creating your adventure. You know, with the people in your group, the people in your party. So wherever you go, you know, throughout Disney Park, what you're going to see is, is, you know, a lot of care being put in, in your, in your, you know, iconography, in your elements, in your sidelines, in your scales, what you have, the layering that you have in those spaces, the way you create cocoons and corridors because you're meant to transition from storyline to story. And when people go to those spaces, uh, you know, they do participate. They do create their own stories. They're highly successful because of that. It goes way beyond just having fun on a ride. There's a lot of parks that also have this. This is, this is storytelling in physical form. 
Yeah, yeah, and it, it it sounds like to to bring up a term you use in the book that Disney is inviting people into the magic circle, or they're drawing a magic circle in the real world, right? And, and inviting people to play in within that circle. And could you just talk a little bit about what that magic circle is and how it functions in the idea of play in your book? Because I, I think that's really interesting. What you say in the book about how it's sort of being redrawn and expanded. Well, if you think about it, right. The core invitation that you have when you go to a Disney park, you know, you're, you're talking about, you're talking about number one, telling a story. Number two, you're talking about bringing in people, okay, who they're not just going to be an audience to the story, but they're actually, you're inviting them to participate, okay, uh, and have a role within that story. It, it's, it's really funny, the, the whole, uh, uh, the whole culture around Disney is that they see themselves as being anything that it's uh, uh, that it's you know in the underground tunnels. That's uh, <coughs> you are you're not considered to be in front of an audience, but as soon as you walk into the park, okay, yeah. you are now considered to be in front of the audience. Uh, cast members are called cast members are meant to be performing. But, but it's not so much a relationship as, you know, I do my act and then you watch me, but I actually bring you into my act. And, and more and more, I'm injecting activities throughout the park because what I want is not to tell you a story as a visitor to the park. Actually, what I want and what I have designed the sequencing uh, of the park is for you to, you know, to participate, to bring you into the magic. And it's it's when you when you go through the evolution of the Disney park design, what is fascinating to me is how they have kept the philosophy, but evolved the degree in which they bring you into the map. They make you a participant. So bringing you into this circle, you know what it means is is to give you increasingly a more active role. Okay, it's everything that is happening in the park because it should be your story. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, whether you go to Snow White or if you go to Avatar in one of the newer parks, it's not so much of you just taking a sneak peek at their story, but you increasingly becoming the centerpiece of that story within that story's world. Yeah, yeah. Let's and can we expand that a little bit more to move away from Disneyland and into sort of like massive, you know, massively multiplayer online games and and VR and stuff, where the idea of welcoming people into the circle and allowing them to sort of take an active part in it is really kind of changing with these new technologies. Um, yes, right. Yeah, yes, it is, and and it's really it's really interesting. Uh, if you go into the history of video games, right. They, uh, they they shifted from being a an entertainment medium and an art form that was centered primarily initially for you know it was inspired by board games and then it moved to kind of single player experiences and then they moved to to you know, multiplayer experiences but sort of in the same room and with the advent of the internet increasingly more and more online experiences right now what has happened is that in parallel to, to shifting to the number of players that you can have, the design itself of the experiences also changed. So 
Now it's increasingly become more and more about layering systems and subsystems. Uh, A lot of them for interaction, a lot of them actually for mediation. And filling a world, a cohesive world, with not only content, but shared objectives. And you effectively give players the tools, uh, not just to play the game, but ultimately to, I'm going to say, hack the game and express themselves through gameplay and through shared gameplay. So if, if you play something akin to, you know, take your pick, right? Uh, now, take your pick, anything from Destiny to Final Fantasy XIV all the way to Minecraft uh, by way of Warframe and Genshin. Uh, what you have are these worlds where, where you have communities that kind of coalesce uh, and, and cohesively okay, uh, embody a social narrative. Well, some of the most fascinating examples are games like, like EVE Online where you have where you have, you know, full social and economic experiments going with thousands of simultaneous players. Uh, so, so when you when you design those spaces, uh, you and this I think is a great lesson for the architecture and the planning world. Uh, I, I I I often comment that in architecture and the planning world, when we build our prototypes because they go directly from the imagination of the architects and planners and they become bricks and mortar. And only after we build something, we start looking to see whether people liked what was built or not. But if you go to the world of video games, actually what you have is an industry that also creates interactive worlds in the virtual space, but they have developed tools and methods to also establish an ongoing communication with users. And the degree at which they bring users into the creation of these worlds, just to make it better, and quite frankly, oftentimes different from what the original designers intended. Yeah. Right? But bringing in the people into the design process as early as possible and treating these worlds uh, not with the goal of reaching a finite state, a final state of them being built, but actually looking at them as ever-evolving spaces and ever-evolving places and ever-changing rules, right, that are socially accorded and socially mediated and balanced. This is fascinating because when we talk about city-making, right, uh, and we go and discuss, you know, thinkers like Henri Lefebvre, we talk about this process. We talk about this process of, of a real produce space only coming out after a process of social contestation, after people getting to terms what they're going to use those spaces for, except that in the in the design and development process, we seldom truly inject those values. And like I said, we end up building prototypes. So this is an industry that actually has, has developed a lot of know-how into, into really doing that into really bringing people and creating just an ongoing conversation in parallel as the world's being created and shaped and reshaped and reshaped and reshaped. Yeah, no, it's, it's really cool. And I I like the the point you make about um, the sort of co-creation in these worlds and and the sort of speed uh, at which feedback gets shuttled around and sort of design changes 
happening c- continuously is, is I think really important in terms of people who are involved in, in uh, innovation and design. And I like, I like what you insist on in the book is that you think of these tools, these new tools, these new digital tools as sort of exploratory. Right? Yes. And I, I was really interested to, to hear about that. And I think, you have a very positive vision of VR as a use as an exploratory tool and as a tool of uh, an engine for empathy. But yes. I, I didn't see much of this in the book. I'm curious to know what you think about the idea of thinking about sort of the bad actors getting a hold of this stuff and using it in sort of an anti-empathic way. And have you thought much about sort of safety and security in these worlds and sort of how you build that into these tools, which are great for exploring, but could be misused unless there's some kind of oversight? Yes, I do. Yes, I have. Uh, and it's actually a really important conversation that needs to happen. Uh, you know, VR and AR, conceptually, they're not new either, right? We've been dreaming about variations of these devices for centuries, literally for, you know, over 150 years. And you can even go back in time. And, and you know, if, if, if you go to caves in prehistory and you look at them painted, they are three-dimensionally painted, and it's this, this effort of us wanting to be elsewhere. That's, that, that's what, you know, it's, it's, it's fundamentally the same feeling. It's fundamentally the same desire. And we've gone from the kinetoscopes all the way to the sensoramas to, uh, you know, Sutherland sort of Damocles, and now to modern VR headset. Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, it's a very powerful medium because it, it, it's a very primal desire that we have that only right now we've, we're sort of being successful at making the technology work or making that vision a reality. Now, the reason why, why, why we, we push for this idea of empathy is because there is, a, there is a vast difference in, in, in being immersed in an environment that effectively overloads and it treats your biology into feeling that you're being someplace else or that you are somebody else. Or, or, uh, and there's a lot of examples on how, as a de- uh, you know, from a design point of view, you can play with them. Uh, for example, uh, you know, my, my kids, one of the earliest applications that they, they used in VR was uh, going to the movies, right? And, but funny enough, they, they, they virtualized an environment where they would be, where the screen would be a smartphone Right, and they would actually be sort of the size of insects, and all of the setting around it was built at that scale. So in the VR environment, they would be at one-to-one scale, but only if they were ants. And the proportional size of a of a smartphone screen would be the equivalent size of you sitting in a movie theater with an IMAX screen. Right? They picked that. They chose that. They 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 got on character while doing that sort of activity. Now. When you, when you talk about VR, what we're really talking about in VR and AR is the next generation of human-machine interface, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it, it simply gives you a lot of biological and, and informational feedback that a normal smartphone or a normal computer can give you, okay? Yes, right now they're bulky, they're awkward, you know, they completely kill your social life. <laughs> uh, if you wear one of those, you know, in the open, yeah. right? Uh, but we know where the technology path for this is moving towards, right? We know that they are they're gonna get 
uh, smaller. They're going to get more stylish. They're going to get cheaper. They're going to, there's a combination of technologies that are going to power them. And ultimately, they will become ubiquitous. And when they become ubiquitous, we know that it is a more uh, powerful medium for a lot of activities. Now, if we, if we then project that and say, okay, this is going to be the next human-machine interface at large scale, what is the kind of, uh, like you say, positive uses, but also negative uses that can happen? For, for as much as I can design a scenario to, to put you in the presence of, uh, I'm going to say, um, you know, a poor community of immigrants in the Middle East that are being pushed out because of, you know, armed conflict. Right. So that you really understand, you know, that the path of the immigrant, you know, what is it that they, they want, not, not just by looking at it on a tiny screen on your computer, but by actually sort of giving you approximations on how to be there. Uh, that, that, there's, a, there's a lot of distance, okay, in the way on how you're going to feel that experience emotionally, okay, and how that experience is going to, how you're going to retain that experience uh, in your head. But at the same time, I can create a fully, you know, dystopic, racist, xenophobic vision of that mm -hmm. and effectively intensify uh, the counter argument for, you know, the alt-right racist media. Mm -hmm. And because of the nature of the media, it's simply much more powerful, okay, then the intensity of those feelings uh, will also enhance. So... We, we, have to, we have to understand the power of the medium that the medium has, not only to communicate, but to bring you into the story, into the setting, okay? That's the power that we need to use with care. On the other hand, uh, it is also a much more intimate medium because, you know, as the technology progresses, this isn't just a medium where you interact with, uh, with software. And like, you know, like most modern locative media that is going to have the capability of tracking you. But increasingly, this is a medium that also uh, is looking at how you behave in, hyper, in, in spaces that will tend to be hyper-realistic, number one. But that also has a more direct input in some of your, in tracking, for example, your, your eye movement. Right. Uh, your, your levels of stress using, you know, things like GSR, galvanic skin response. Uh, so just, just, to, just to name a few of the, the sort of the biometrics that these devices can scan when you have them fully, you know, uh, when you're wearing them fully all day. So there's a responsibility to the type of data that these devices, that these platforms will generate, okay? Uh, and I don't see that to be that disconnected from from some of the current conversations when we talk about you know data privacy, data misuse. Uh, if we think about if we think about you know the dangers of social media creating echo chambers in you know and misinformation. Uh, well, you know, think about how mu how much of that is happening through fairly lo-fi media, right? Just some text and videos, sometimes some, you know, author videos, sometimes some fake audio or, you know, most of the time photos, GIFs and memes. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Think about when you're doing that at another scale of visual representation and fidelity. And then it's very easy to start to start putting the little Lego pieces together, right? How does it fit when you have when you have deep learning capable of creating fake synthetic environments, but then tied to narrative being pushed through, you know, interlinked headsets akin to, you know, the same way you interlink people through social media. What is that echo chamber about? Yeah. No, it's and is that a is that a positive thing? That's right. I think you're right. I think there is a great responsibility there. And we're gonna have to create some sort of structures for monitoring that and thinking about what's happening because if all we're pressing on is making the tech work and making the tech exciting, that could be um, create all kinds of problems which we're just not prepared for, clearly. So 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 there's an interpretation of, of you know, th- there's going to be a lot of development precisely in terms of the interpretation of sensor data. You know, for as much as I can use something like albanic skin response and eye tracking, right? If, if I think about it on a positive sense, right? Uh, and I'm a planner, so I want to, I want to get people excited about a, a, a new public space that we're creating, right? And I'm inviting them. And I can sense and track their eyes to see what is it that they observe first and second, what they like, what they don't like, what, you know, some of the intensity of their emotions, for example, Right? Uh, and that data, you know, within that positive context can have a lot of beneficial uses. But the same can happen, you know, in terms of wanting to have a series of intense of uh, intense experiences on the negative side, right? Uh, and, and I'm just testing, you know, what are, what are the pieces that effectively scare you more just to drive a political narrative, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that to me is quite scary, to be honest. I get you. Same here. Now let's let's pause for a second, and we're going to play a game because I know you're a big one for play, and I thought that would be fun to try something out here. So let's say that you are the author of a book called Urban Play, and I am a corporate executive who has hired you to do some consulting for me. Yes. Say something to you. I'm going to say, okay, Professor, I got a question for you. Your book says that technology is powerful, not when it becomes optimally functional but when it is essentially playful, when imagining and tinkering with technology equals imagining and tinkering with possible futures, how am I supposed to use this? My firm is heavily focused on optimization. How would I even incorporate it into the way we do business? How am I going to measure the ROI of play, sir? Okay, it's very simple. Number one, uh, what (laughs) what is your company about? You're optimizing what? Let's say you're optimizing traffic. Okay, just to just to you know play with the example. If you're heavily linked into optimization, you're just pursuing one potential line of evolution of the technology that you're using, and you're trying to shape more and more and more of that technology. Now, the better you get at it, eventually you're gonna hit a curve of diminishing returns. Okay, that doesn't speak that well for your company strategy. Now, if you take a step back and go to, you know, when we started putting technologies to optimize traffic, right? Technology is not only not only the automobiles, but you know, things like traffic lights and you know, uh, monitoring or simulating the different speeds and synchronizations of streets and cities. Uh, what I wonder is, what would have happened if, for example, 
you would have given a lot of people simulators to play in the way they would they would interact with their Oregon destination trade where they would go in and out about their day just to see what are the combinations of routes that they do. What would happen if you let them design uh, the layout of the roads? But and this is just one iteration of the technology. Now, what would happen if you're actually starting to play in the technology of the creating the different modes of transportation, not just fixating you to, to one mode of transportation, such as the automobile? So why do we say that technology is at, at its most powerful state when you're playing? Is because when you're playing, okay, and you're exploring all of all of all of these possibilities, okay, these possibilities, they give you choices, not, not, not only in terms of, of, of the ones that you can pick at that moment, but in terms of the, the evolutionary impact that these technologies will have through time. When you, when effectively, when you push for optimization, you're pushing towards specialization of these technologies, which means that your, your evolutionary path for that technology okay, becomes constrained. When you're going early on, you have, a, you have a possibility for much deeper impact. And those early variations end up dictating what many of these potential uses in the future can be and their variations. Mm -hmm. I like it. Thank you, sir. Now, it's bad. now back to the regular questions. We talked a little bit about the metaverse uh, and uh, meta last time you and I talked. Can yeah. you explain a little bit how you see this uh, changing things in terms of sort of virtual reality and, and virtual features and, and using these technologies to um, go forward? Sure. Uh, so, so first, first, I think it's important that a lot of the people who either aren't fans of, of, uh, of science fiction or are not necessarily familiar with the, with the media understand what the metaverse is. Metaverse comes from science fiction literature. The, the, actually, the name metaverse comes from uh, Neil Stevenson's in books like Snow Crash, and even before him, you know, Will and Gibson books like Neuromancer. We all talk about this concept of a virtual universe that was parallel to the physical universe. But now because it's virtual, it comes with the advantages of virtuality, which means not only can it be infinite, but it can be whatever you want. It doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to ascribe to, you know, the loss of physics, the loss of nature, right? right? So, so it gives you absolute freedom to be whatever you want in whichever context. Now, because we humans are social creatures, the reality is that a lot of those contexts, in order to make sense, they need to be socially constructed. So effectively, what you end up having is, is a combination of different worlds and experiences and uses layered on top of each other. And the metaverse is effectively the platform okay, that cohesively interconnects all of them. On the technical side of things, of course, you're going to have uh, you're going to have a collection of technologies anywhere from uh, anywhere from the devices themselves that allow you to you know, be in VR and you know AR. Although the metaverse is more on the VR side of things, uh, you're going to have, of course, a lot of technologies in terms of rendering and transmitting uh, information back and forth. Uh, but what is important is the tools 
that you're going to give to people to create those worlds and those experiences, right? Because I can assure you, if, if, if Facebook now meta decides to themselves create the metaverse in their own vision and image, they will fail. That's not how it's going to work. You need to, what they need to do, and this is this is in part what they're doing with their Horizons platform. You need to give people the tools for them to create those worlds on their own terms, right? Because that's where you create these pockets of human interest. So the metaverse, in in the end, you know, will end up becoming this, uh, I would say, shapeless space in in some places highly codified and formal. I would say in most places, uh, you know, fairly chaotic and odd and weird, unless you're part of the specific communities, okay, that create that created and interact with each one of those spaces. Now, I don't, I've never fully bought onto the idea that people will spend so much time into the metaverse as to forget the, you know, they live in a real world. I personally find that highly dystopic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about it in terms of informational bandwidth. And the truth is that, you know, VR, it's still pretty far away from giving you the equivalent of uh, the informational bandwidth that a true face-to-face meeting with somebody can give you. But it can make a lot of the processes that we use in, in our current state of the metaverse, which is effectively the internet, that we consume through through a 2D displays, okay, more with more abstract interfaces, uh, it can improve many of, of those processes. I could be sitting with you right now on a radio booth recording this session, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than rather than using a two-dimensional interface or a browser, for example. And you know, and and the system could be not only capturing you and creating a virtual avatar that you may decide it's a hyper-realistic depiction of you in the virtual space or, or, or you're a, a purple, you know, a dinosaur <laughs> with feathers, right? And, right. Uh, but the point is that the system also has the capability of, of, through biometrics, you know, picking your gestures, your faces, the type of reactions that we're going to have in a conversation that is simply going to make this flow even more naturally than what it is right now. And that's just one example of transposing one activity to, you know, another type of space, another type of media. And to me, this is fascinating because we're sitting at a moment in time when we are fundamentally designing the language of the new media. And this is great because what it means is that we need to sort of figure out what would be the optimal and creative ways of re-encoding a lot of the activities that we do, okay, through established media. What is the equivalent of, of uh, you know, getting directions in a VR, AR environment? In a two-dimensional form, we read maps, right? They began on parchment and paper, and now we consume them on screens. But, you know, if, if, if we're looking at a floating map using AR, it kind of misses the point, don't you think? I agree. A better way would be to paint a line on the streets or float an arrow 
which that already exists. And I also think it sort of misses the point because it takes you in, you know, it, it uses abstract symbolism embedded within the real world. So that sort of takes you out of the fantasy and the immersion. Now, what would happen if I would, if I would, uh, you know, program a cat, a cat with an, with, you know, moved by AI to just, you know, guide me to my destination. Right. Right. And, and to me, you know, what I've done is I brought physicality in the form of a realistic moving cat. Okay. Uh, to a function of, of, you know, getting directions. And that's a very different form of representation and interaction than what I have right now with Google Maps. So now we can really start thinking about what does it mean for a lot of the different activities that we do on a day-to-day basis. Cool. I, w- I want to ask you about uh, an idea that you brought up in the book quite a bit, and I think is really kind of unique, is the, the notion of, of self-deception. You talk about it a lot. And you actually say that playfulness is the attitude that helps us differentiate between ethical self-deception and sheer manipulation. And then you go on, yes. you talk about, you, you, you reference what you call the beneficial untruths we tell ourselves. And I, I, was, I was wondering if we could chat a little bit about how deceiving yourself can be an ethical and creative act, because I think that's, that's a, a really surprising and, and, and novel idea, and I think our, our listeners would be interested to hear you talk about it. Yeah, so, so we discuss self-deception because oftentimes when we talk about deception, we talk about this notion of being manipulated, being lied, Right. And of course, that has a completely negative meaning. But sometimes it's actually nice to allow ourselves to be in a state or in a place or playing under rules or assumptions that we know they are not real, okay? But simply allows us to put ourselves in in, in different shoes and to really, uh, you know, start experimenting both mentally and and even socially, we do it in groups, Uh, scenarios. And that's a lot of fun. It really is a lot of fun, right? Uh, Funny enough, we used to do it all the time when we were kids. Every time we used to play as kids, we used to take roles. Right. Right? Hey, I trust me, I love being the Space Marine. (laughs) Really, I really did. I I love science fiction, so of course I was going to be a Space Marine. Uh, and, you know, I know I'm not a space marine, but, you know, but for me at that precise moment, you know, the space, I'm a space marine and my backyard is a weird planet and my dog is an alien, right? And I'm deciding with my, with my co-space marine whether we should kill it or befriend it, <laughs> right? So, so, you know, when you start using that kind of logic, okay, basically what you are allowing yourself, you're, afford, you're affording yourself possibilities for exploration. And that is quite positive. Very oftentimes what, what, we, what we found, and, and, and we talk with a lot of companies and we talk with a lot of governments, right, that, that they approach us in the lab to, because they want to create like cool projects. And very frequent what we find is that they do not allow themselves okay to truly experiment by by changing their position 
So when we talk about self-deception, okay, we do talk about, oh, yeah, 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 trick yourself. And these technologies are quite cool because, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting uh, into already also tricking you as well. They're quite effective at that. Mm-hmm. So, so when we see this, this sort of collection in between, in between the mental states that you're allowing yourself to be, right? Who you're allowing yourself to be under which context, under scenario and situation, okay? Uh, and with whom? Uh, and now aided by tools that effectively, you know, help you bridge that gap. So, you know, sometimes have, uh, some, some people have better visual imagination uh, than others, right? Uh, then, then this allows you to, to put yourself in a state of creation. Uh, but creation now, I'm going to say, outside of your, of your ordinary everyday track. Yeah. Now the the trick, which which I don't I don't think we've 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 found the solution to yet, is how do we allow socially for the output of these playful self deceptive states for that for the outcome of those processes to be considered serious, mm-hmm. and this is a very important uh, question. Because uh, when we create something in a play state, okay, we tend to socially diminish its value. We, d- we usually don't take it at face value to really consider the implications on whether an idea is worth pursuing in you know, what we call the real world. Yes. And that actually brings me to my last question. You talk in the final chapter about Fab Labs over at yes. MIT and elsewhere. And at EPAM Continuum, where we work, we have something called the Made Real Lab. And that's our space where uh, we do what you call ground the, the Fab Labs idea, which is grounded on the idea that with uh, these tools, anyone anywhere can create, tweak, and build their own objects, tools, games, and devices. We have a place for that in our sort of innovation and design work uh, in the Made Real Lab. But and it's accessible to people there. But we, we, we're very sort of guided in the kinds of things we try to build. We have people who are experts in prototyping and testing who sort yeah. of make sure that what we're doing is headed in the right direction and is set up to get the, ask the kind of questions uh, that we want from a prototype. And I was wondering, do you have any sense of how the, the Fab Lab does that or is there or is it just purely decentralized over there at MIT? Uh, I mean, you know, there's there's – there's quite a ton of fab labs and there's quite a ton of digital fabrication labs that are MIT, right? They're, they're kind of like thrown all over the place. Yeah. Uh, culturally speaking, MIT is a very hands-on, do-it-yourself uh, culture, right? You know, most of us have been there. We were like that even before uh, we walked into the halls of MIT, right? So, so the fab lab... You know, it really helps us kind of power and take that creativity to the next level, okay? And learning to use the tools, learning to master the tools, uh, it's it's fundamentally a form of expression. It's a form of creative expression. So, so we just sort of take it and run with it, right? Uh, of course, there's a lot of classes at MIT about, about fab labs. They're going to... I'm going to walk you through the paces of the specific 
technologies, the specific tools that, that you have access to. But I think what the Fab Labs speak to most isn't so much about technology A or technology B or technology C, but rather at how you at how this new set of of, of uh, digital aided tools empowers an individual to achieve a degree of precision uh, and complexity when it comes to creating an idea that up until very recently was only in the hands of, you know, major global corporations. Mm. That is really empowering. Okay. Now, the trick to the question is that it's, the, you know, the Fab Lab, they still don't answer some of the other questions uh, in regards to how do you move the output for a fab lab to scale, which is what most of, which is why most of the things that you see coming out of fab labs uh, still function as prototypes. Right. Okay. They're they're greater. They're prototypes with more complexity, uh, more complexity in design, more complex in element, more complex in in the things that they do. Right. Uh, they, you know, better materials, uh, better degrees of precision, but they are still prototypes. And the way the the way many uh, industries, okay, have have taken, you know, not only fabrication labs and you know, digital fabrication and prototyping tools, is as that. And I still think that we have to take it to the next level where we can kind of achieve that degree of, of design experimentation that a fab lab gives you, uh, that it doesn't need to be in a centralized way. It can definitely be in a decentralized way. You can bring in together, uh, you know, multiple actors and have a kind of coalesce in a fab lab as a platform and then generate a shared output or everybody do their own thing. But more and more, how you do that and interconnect that with processes of scale so that you move from prototyping into actual production. Uh, as the systems that we create for mass manufacturing become more and more digitized and better integrated, I think this will push towards the reality of, at least from a technology point of view, making that vision feasible, but we will still, we will still need to answer, okay, the relevant question of now when you're talking at scale, who gets access and who decides who should get access and which project gets to, should get access to those scale. Right. And most industries are not configured by that, uh, are not configured to think in those terms. Most industries, they say, I'm, I'm gonna make my investment in my mass manufacturing equipments, and then I will use them or I will outsource them, right? Mm -hmm. But when you start seeing the way many designers are now using, for example, crowdfunding tools, not only to get money for their for their projects, but even more important to get to get market validation. Okay, and to really think about you know how many units of my idea would the market purchase. So that then I can start thinking creatively about how to use that to now get into scale manufacturing. Yep, yep. The feedback okay. effects the, the business model. 
So the feedback loop within the business model, I think is as crucial as the technology itself. Yeah. Well, this is great, Ricardo. I, I have really enjoyed listening to you and talking with you. And uh, thank you so much for coming on to chat with us on The Resonance. Well, likewise. This is great. This has been a great experience. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting, focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks are due to our guest Ricardo Alvarez for a playful interview. He was interviewed by our producer, Ken Gordon. Kip Palalis is our sound engineer, and I'm your host, Kenji Ross. Until the next one, thank you. <laughs>